I'm going to have us spend a moment in prayer, and you can be turning to Matthew 7, which was our, our consideration today. But let's pray as you're finding Matthew 7. Our Father, we come to you now just thrilled by the truths that we have just sung. How glorious it is to think upon the gospel. And we say over and over again, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise God. For our salvation has been won at the cross of Christ. And this day, as we consider our text in Matthew 7, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be overjoyed with truth, and for those for whom it's necessary, warned by the truth. Let your word speak. You have promised us that it will never return empty. You will always accomplish that which you have set it out to do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Today in Matthew 7, we're going to consider verses 7 through 12. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago in Matthew 7, Jesus begins this climactic crescendo to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And this this climactic crescendo is filled with warnings. In verse 13, he says that the way, it's a Greek word that means the road, is broad that leads to destruction. The destruction is the judgment of God. And in one way or another, every segment of chapter 7 gives what I've called warning signs on hell's highway. On the road toward hell, there are warning after warning after warning. Last time we saw the warning sign of self-righteousness in verses 1 through 6, that the person who loves his sin, characterized by Jesus as the log in the eye, is the hypocrite, the dogs and the pigs who are shut off to the gospel unless a mighty work of the Holy Spirit happens. Well, this morning I'd like to examine the warning sign of lovelessness, of lovelessness, an unloving heart. Let me read the text to us and then we'll begin to take it apart. Matthew 7, verse 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Therefore, in all things, whatever you want people to do for you, so do for them, for this is the law and the prophets. And we get a small insight here into the loving nature of God the Father. Jesus gives us this insight into his Father in heaven, his loving nature toward those who belong to him. In verse 7, we get the classic three times over invitation for genuine worshipers of God to beseech God in prayer, the ask and seek and knock invitations. And we see that those who are following Christ can expect to see answered prayer. There's a stipulation of walking faithfully with the Lord. 1 John 3, 22 says, Whatever we ask, we receive from him. And here's the stipulation, because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. And certainly when we ask, our motives must be pure. James 4, 3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. 
And our intention must be to do the will of the Father. That's always our concern, is to do God's will. 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so here in Matthew 7, Jesus gives the illustration of a, a human father and a son, that a son asking for bread won't receive a stone. A son asking for a fish won't receive a snake. Now, if Jesus were to give a conclusion, if he were to give a, a lesson or a point to this encouragement, in verses 7 through 11, we would expect something like this. Therefore, ask of your father, for he loves to give good things to his children. Or, therefore, seek wisdom and help from God, because like a loving human father, he will always give you what you need. Or maybe something like this. To those who love God, his door is always open. He is always ready to answer when you knock. That's what we would expect. But it seems like Jesus changes the subject. Verse 12, therefore, in all things, whatever you want people to do for you, so do for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Some of our English translations even put a section break between verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12, the English Standard Version, New Revised Standard Version, New King James Version, they all set apart verse 12 as not part of verses 7 through 11. But in verse 12, Jesus gives what has been most famously called the golden rule. The do unto others rule of life. It's a brilliant and a lovely heavenly ethic which impacts every situation in your life when it comes to dealing with others. And oddly enough, it seems on the surface that it has nothing to do with the fact that Jesus was just highlighting the generous care of God the Father. So what's happening here? Well, in verse 12, the logical conjunction there, therefore... It tells us that the teaching of verses 7 through 11 is leading to this point, that verse 12 is the theme of verses 7 through 11. And in verse 12, Jesus is speaking of loving one another. So what's the connection? What's the logic? Well, we're going to take our time in working our way to the answer to that question by taking a detour. And I think it's necessary for us to do this. I want to build an understanding of genuine Christian love of genuine Christian love. And here's the plan. I'd like to give you four perspectives that build our understanding of genuine Christian love because the logic of verse 12 is going to make that apparent. And then we're going to circle all the way back around to Matthew 7. So four perspectives of genuine Christian love. I'm going to give them to you up front and then we'll list them again as we go. The theology of genuine Christian love. That's the first perspective. The nature of genuine Christian love the practice of genuine Christian love, and then bringing this back to Matthew 7, the test of genuine Christian love. So the theology, the nature, the practice, and the test of genuine Christian love. I'm, I'm going to give you a lot of lists, some outlines today. I hope it will be helpful to you. And then I'm going to close our time. We're going to go to what I think is one of the most compelling examples in all of the Old Testament which will prove exactly the logic that Jesus is putting forward in Matthew 7, 7 through 12. But for now, let's build an understanding of genuine Christian love. Our first perspective, the theology of genuine Christian love. We're going to use quite a few texts in 1 John to help us, and so I think you'd find it helpful to follow along. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, and we'll kind of 
ping-pong around between a few chapters here in 1 John to look at the theology of genuine Christian love. I want to give some important points concerning the theology of Christian love, and so we're just going to do a short list here. First of all, love is rooted in God's electing love. Love is rooted in God's electing love. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Love is from God. We've been born of God. Look at the end of verse 8. Very classic phrase. God is love. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The love of God is shown in the satisfaction of his wrath against us, the propitiation for our sins, that that glorious satisfaction at the cross. Again, in verse 16, we see God is love. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us with all due Patience and respect to those who refuse to believe the doctrine of election, that God chooses those who will be saved. The Apostle John here is very clear that God is the initiator of salvation. Why is this important? Why why split hairs on this? If you don't believe the doctrine of election, and if you don't believe that God initiates salvation, then basically you're saying that once you of your own free will, exercising saving faith in Christ, once you do that, then God begins to love you. That God loves in response to your action. But John says, he first loved us. Jesus didn't go to the cross so that God could love you. Jesus went to the cross because God loves you. There is a huge difference there. So first of all, in our theology of genuine Christian love, love is rooted in God's electing love. That's where it starts. It's where it must begin. Here's a second important point in the theology of genuine Christian love. Loving one another is involuntary. Loving one another is involuntary. Let me give you a longer version. Loving one another is the involuntary response to God's electing love. God's electing love comes first. Your love for one another is involuntary. It is automatic. Now, all throughout 1 John, he mixes in admonitions to love one another because we don't do so perfectly. We're we're sinners in sinful bodies. But they're laced with the truth that our love for one another is involuntary. Again, 1 John 4, 7. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. First part of verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God. Verse 12, no one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God abides in the one who loves the brothers. Go back one chapter, the first John chapter 3, verse 10. I, I love the Apostle John. He, I, I relate to him. He's so black and white. He's so clear. Everything is on a razor's edge for him. 1 John 3.10, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Everyone who does not do righteousness is not of God, as well as the one who does not love his brother. And similarly, verse 14, 
We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. The one who does not love abides in death. So why is loving one another involuntary? Why is it the involuntary response to God's electing love? Well, that is answered by the third point. Love is caused by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Love is caused by the indwelling Holy Spirit. So love is rooted in God's electing love. Loving one another is involuntary. And love is caused by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Back in chapter 4, we read in verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us. And we get more specificity in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Of course, we think of the Apostle Paul explaining in Galatians 5 the outworking of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the result of the indwelling Holy Spirit, or as he puts it, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And we know this verse by heart. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. It is involuntary. It is indwelling by the Holy Spirit. So that's a basic theology of genuine Christian love. It's rooted in God's electing love. It's involuntary. And love is caused by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Let me give you a second perspective as we build our understanding of genuine Christian love. This is the nature of genuine Christian love. What's the nature of genuine Christian love? Well, first of all, love expresses loyalty to God. Love expresses loyalty to God. Look with me at 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. 1 John 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. There's the first part of the logic. And everyone who loves the one who gives new birth loves also the one who has been born of him. Did you catch that? This is stunning. If you love me, God says, since I gave you new birth in Christ, then you will love everyone else to whom I've given the new birth. Now John puts this in very family terms, familial terms. The word new is provided for us in our English translation. But the Greek text simply says something like this. Everyone who is believing that Jesus is the Christ, by God he has been born. And everyone who is loving him has caused who caused birth, loves the one born by him. This is so simple to understand. And if you're a parent of multiple kids, you already understand this. This is the same speech given by countless parents for millennia. Love your brothers and sisters because you all came from me. Many parents have given that speech. And as a parent, you know it grieves your heart to see siblings set against each other. How many parents have said to their children, if you love me, you will love each other because all of you came from me. So first, love expresses loyalty to God. Second part of the nature of genuine Christian love, love prioritizes the church. Love prioritizes the church. Listen to Paul's admonition to the churches of Galatia. Galatians 6, beginning in verse 9, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially, above all, most importantly, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. 
that's such an interesting concept that I think has been lost in, in modern evangelicalism in many ways. If you're in Christ, yes, absolutely. You are the light and the salt to a dying world. You are to demonstrate love for your neighbors. But Paul couldn't be clearer, especially, above all, most importantly, for those of the household of faith. The church is your priority. Your brothers in Christ are your priority. Your sisters in Christ are your priority. After your family, the major focus of your life is the love of your household of faith, the people with whom you will spend eternity. It is out of balance. It's lopsided. It's a, it's a false righteousness to say, well, my focus is upon the lost people around me. That's my priority. I'm an evangelist. And honestly, as a pastor, I've been pastoring long enough now to see the variety of Christian who is very highly concerned for the lost, engages in evangelism at every opportunity. That is tremendous. That is wonderful. But at times, that person can tend to be aloof, from the church, perhaps distant and not terribly involved in the life of the church. We have had people come to our church and as a stipulation for joining the church, they will say, will you support my ministry, my little thing? And we always say, no, you're here to join us. We're not joining you. You want the lost to know that you follow Christ? Then follow Jesus's plan for evangelism. Here's his plan. John 13, 35, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The greatest act of evangelism you can do is to love the body of Christ because the world will see that. Love expresses loyalty to God. Love prioritizes the church as a third part of the nature of genuine Christian love. Love is comprised of actions. Love is comprised of actions. We're still in 1 John Look at 1 John 3, 18. 1 John 3, 18. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. This isn't a prohibition against loving with words. Words are a tremendous way to demonstrate love, and for some, words may be the most powerful tool they have. A tremendous tool for you to demonstrate love. We understand that. We don't deny that. But John's pointing out that love is more than talk. Love is comprised of actions, deeds, literally in Greek, works, things you do. And these deeds are done with a pure heart. They're done in truth, not a show that looks like love not doing something to hopefully get some accolades back, not doing that thing that you're mad because you didn't get the thank you note back in 24 hours or the little rules you set for your service didn't get completed. But these are actions done with a genuine internal heart of regard for one another. John uses the the verb here, love, the classic Greek verb, agapao. One of the most extensively written about word groups in Greek word studies, one major resource defines this word as to show warm regard for and interest in another, esteem, affection. Another says it is to love based on the other's regarded value. It's not a show, it's real. In other words, love is comprised of actions because you so highly treasure and value the children of God. See also 1 John 5, 1, that if you love Me, you will love all those that I saved. 
You should highly value the children of God. They've been purchased by the same Savior that you have been. And so the nature of genuine Christian love is that it expresses loyalty to God. It prioritizes the church and it's comprised of actions, things you do. Let me give you a third perspective concerning genuine Christian love, and that is the practice of genuine Christian love. The practice of genuine Christian love. First of all, love serves one another. Love serves one another. It's so important to be clear that the church, as the proclaimer of Christ on earth, the church has a duty to Christ to expose the world to the gospel. And this is to be an effort of the entire church. But this is bound up and tied together with serving each other. You can't separate one from the other. You, you can't say, well, our church is a serving church, and this church over here is an evangelistic church. No, they go together. For example, the spiritual gifts Paul lists in Romans 12, they have a dual purpose. They serve one another, and they serve the gospel purpose of the church. He gives this list. There are those who serve. That is, doing the smallest, most insignificant task. They're help to others. They're also assisting the proclamation of the gospel. There are those who teach. This serves the brothers and sisters by giving the good food of the word of God, and it equips them to live Christian lives to the glory of God, which spreads the gospel. There are those who exhort. This serves the brothers and sisters by accelerating our godliness in their lives, which in turn makes the whole church more effective for the gospel. You want to show me a church that's ineffective for the gospel? I'll show you a church that doesn't care about personal sanctification. Paul lists those who give. This helps the brothers and sisters by providing the, the preaching and shepherding for the whole body in the support of the full-time shepherds. And the giving of the church is just like the rest of the world. You get what you pay for. And it funds the spread of the gospel beyond the walls of the church. I am so blessed to be part of Grace Bible Church. We are the one, one of the most generous churches to our missionaries I've ever seen in my lifetime. Paul lists those who lead. This gives the body opportunities to serve. Listen, it is the responsibility, it is the duty of leaders in the church to provide service opportunities. It also creates a robust ministry with numerous facets. That spreads the gospel. And then Paul lists finally those who show mercy. This serves the brothers and sisters in your most vulnerable times. And it demonstrates to the world that love is from God. And so first of all, in the practice of genuine Christian love, love serves one another. The second part to this, love suffers for one another. Love suffers for one another. Paul wrote to the Colossian church regarding his suffering for the faith, and he wrote in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and I fill up what is lacking of Christ's afflictions in my flesh on behalf of his body, which is the church. He's not saying that Christ failed to fulfill his ministry, but that Christians take up the mantle of suffering the suffering of Christ, we take it up on his behalf. Let me put it to you this way. If you're trying to craft a quote-unquote church experience, which is devoid of suffering, devoid of sacrifice, devoid of pain and sweat and even discomfort, this is not in line with the charge that we serve one another sacrificially. 
Think about this. In Revelation 2, 8 through 11, Christ told the church at Smyrna that they were about to enter a time of great suffering. Some of them would even be imprisoned and even put to death. What do you think would happen in an American church that was given that message? Well, I feel the Lord leaving me to change churches. It came upon me all of a sudden here. Did it ever occur to you that the Christians at Smyrna simply could have packed up and left? They didn't. It's utterly selfish to think about the church in terms of crafting a comfortable experience for myself. Love serves one another. Love suffers for one another. Here's a third part to the practice of genuine Christian love. Love defers to one another. Love defers to one another. You want to start an avalanche of delightful blessing in the local church, be the one who genuinely obeys in all respects. Philippians 2, 2 and 3, fulfill my joy that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Listen, if you get this, I mean, if you really get it, You will live a Christian life characterized by love and you are contagious. That selflessness is contagious to those around you. You'll be an example of humility. You'll be radically impacting, or if I could put it this way, you'll be silently confronting all the selfish people around you when they see your example. They'll go home with their tail between their legs, thoroughly chastised and eager to follow your lead. By the way, For a leader in the church, the inability to defer is a disqualifying factor because it makes you like Diotrephes of 3 John who loves to be first. Those who love to be first shouldn't be first. And how simple it truly is. Love serves one another. Love suffers for one another. Love defers to one another. So I've given you three perspectives so far of genuine Christian love, the theology, the nature, and the practice of genuine Christian love. I want to circle back now. Our fourth perspective, the test of genuine Christian love. The test of genuine Christian love. Now we can go back to Matthew 7, and let's piece together the logic, the argument, the rationale behind the fact that Jesus seems to completely change subjects from verses 11 to verse 12. Now, to put together the logic of this passage, I think it's actually helpful to work backwards. So I'm going to give you a series of statements that will explain the rationale, the logic that Jesus is giving by working our way backwards through the text. The first statement I'm going to give you, and this is the logic, the true believer loves God by obeying him. The true believer loves God by obeying him. Jesus expresses that the golden rule encompasses, he says, the law and the prophets, that all of the commands in the old covenant regarding how the member of the glorious covenant community treated his neighbors, it's summarized, it's concise, it's all put together by whatever you want people to do for you, so do for them. 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. John 15, 14, Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. In other words, love for God in the true believer is expressed in obedience. Let me give you a second statement to build on the first statement. First statement, the true believer loves God by obeying him. Second statement, 
Obeying God is expressed by loving one another. We love God by obeying him, and obeying God is expressed by loving one another. Whatever you want people to do for you, so do for them. 1 John 5, 2, by this we know we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Did you catch that? Loving God, keeping his commandments, and loving the children of God are all tied in together. Here's a third statement to build our logic. Loving one another is done the way God loves. Loving one another is done the way God loves. How does God love his children? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. And look, if you have trouble remembering that, in English, it's an acronym, A-S-K, ask, ask, seek, and knock. That's how God loves, with generosity, with, with total lavishness. Let me give you a fourth statement. This is a therefore. It puts it all together. Therefore, Only the one who loves his brother, only the one who loves his brother as God does, is a true believer. Only the one who loves his brother as God does is a true believer. This is the test of salvation. For the genuine believer in Christ, loving one another is second nature. It's instinctive. It's it's natural. It's part of who you are. It's the fruit of the Spirit. This is my entire point today. I've called this the warning sign of lovelessness on hell's highway. Considering the context, the self-righteous before in verses 1 through 6, the warning of easy believism in verses 13 and 14, here's the warning. If you're not doing to others what you would have them to do to you, You're not following the example of God. If you're not following the example of God, God is not in you. I know we've had some extensive lists and outlines today. That was by design. I'm trying to give a theology of the test of genuine salvation. And that is love for people of God. But if you'll stay with me, I want to give you the most important list. I want to put everything all together. And I want to give you a... List of 10 tests of genuine salvation related to loving one another. 10 tests of genuine salvation related to loving one another. Because if you fail these tests, you are on hell's highway. You may have deceived yourself into thinking you're a genuine believer. 10 tests of genuine salvation. The first one we'll call the humility test. The humility test. With whom are you humble? Who is the one you share struggles with, even sin struggles? Who is the one who's allowed to see behind the curtain of your life? Or do you carefully craft and characterize your life in terms that you can spin to seem spiritually unassailable? Listen, I've pastored long enough to see some pretty incredible spin doctors in the church. That no matter what you say to them, they spin it to their favor. The humility test. There's a second test, the listening test. The listening test. Who are you listening to? Who may speak candidly into your life? Who rejoices with you when you rejoice? Who weeps with you when you weep? Who knows that he could speak a word of encouragement and even a word of correction and you would hear it gladly? 
There's a third test, the bonding test. The bonding test. Who are you bonded to? Who are you experiencing with, like the men on the road to Emmaus, did not our hearts burn within us? Fellowship. A resistance to the bonded friendship available in the body of Christ indicates a wall of pride. And I've heard this before too. Some may say, I'm just shy. Shyness is a form of pride that doesn't want to be vulnerable. As you read the Apostle Paul's letters, his bond to the churches that he serves is just, is just oozing out of his writings. He loves them. He cherishes them. He misses them when he can't see them. He's eager to see them when he's away from them. Are you initiating relational interaction or do you pridefully and passively wait for others, maybe even thinking the worst of them if they don't read your mind knowing what you're hoping for? The bonding test. There's a fourth test, the service test. The service test. Who are you serving sacrificially? If I asked you to find something to write on, could you list three, four, or five people that you are serving? Are your friendships in the body measured by what others do for you or by what you choose to do for them? Could you point to those believers who are significantly less rich, less helped if suddenly you're not here, if you're not part of their lives? 1 John 3.17, John says, Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? I'm always astounded at the shallow, insignificant, ridiculous reasons people choose to leave a church or to change churches or to change even locations. You know what that tells me? They didn't bond with anybody. Here's a fifth test, the gospel test. The gospel test. How are you perpetuating the gospel work alongside others? Not the lone hero thinking that you must be a ministry unto yourself. Who are you praying with for gospel-oriented goals? Do you let others do all the work of bringing the richness of ministry to the local church? Look at Grace. We, we try to find a, a balance. We don't want to be too busy, but we want to be busy enough that you have nothing else to do except work, do your family, and do church. That's what the early church did. The gospel test. By the way, the early church was so concerned for the gospel because they had a, a very limited and undeveloped eschatology. They, generally speaking, thought Christ could return any day. You know what that made them? It made them evangelists. Here's the sixth test. The delight test. The delight test. Who are you delighting in? Who brings you joy just to think about them? Who has so penetrated your own heart that you would be significantly less rich in love without that person? If this is an alarmingly small number of people to you, I would refer you again to the service test. That maybe you should be serving others such that they delight in you. Here's the seventh test, the submission test. The submission test. Submission to authority is a form of love of Christ. And all Christians, all Christians submit to someone. In the church, you submit to one another. Ephesians 5.21, elders submit to one another in the church. You submit to ministry leaders. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 and 13, you submit to deacons over certain ministries. You submit ultimately to the elders. Wives submit to husbands. Employees submit to employers. 
So here's the question. Is your life characterized by taking joy in submission, which is an act of loving Christ, by making the life of those in authority over you one of joy and delight in your service? Or are you a grumbler, either in secret or openly, never satisfied, covertly and secretly cherishing resentment and unfounded mistrust? Here's an eighth test I'll call the forgiveness test. The forgiveness test. Ephesians 4.32 commands that we forgive each other just as God in Christ has graciously forgiven us. This speaks generally of the internal attitude of not harboring bitterness. You never have the right to do so. You never have the right to think that someone is less worthy of the love of God than you are. Luke 17 speaks of the external act of responding to repentance and restoring relationships. But if you ultimately believe that certain people have no right to your forgiveness in terms of harboring bitterness, that's a sign you believe you're above them. A refusal to stop harboring embittered thoughts against another before God may indicate an inability to forgive. And to be very, very clear, unbelievers cannot forgive because they have no basis to do so. Only the forgiven can extend forgiveness. On the flip side, number nine, the repentance test. The repentance test. When the fellow believer brings up an observed sin or maybe even just a concern that may or may not be a sin issue, are you quick to listen? Are you quick to respond in humility? Are you thankful for someone helping you become more like Christ and accelerating that process? Or have those who are closest to you learned that confronting you with anything means hitting the wall of your resistance, of your self-justifying excuses, and the personal attack that's bound to come, the oh yeah that's on its way? Have you sent the message to everyone around you that they will pay an extremely high, an extremely exacting emotional price for ever daring to point out even the smallest area of improvement in Christ-likeness? I'm going to give you one more test. I call this one the thinking test. The thinking test, and only you can evaluate this one. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This has to do with how you choose to think about others. What is your choice of how you think of them? Is your thinking about others, if suddenly broadcast aloud, would that be something you would be fine with broadcasting? If, if we had in one of your seats a device that could suddenly broadcast your thoughts aloud and James could live stream it right now, would you be okay with that? Or is your thought life in reality characterized by a litany of criticism, finding fault in everyone around you, seeing nitpicky annoyances all around you? Let me give you a challenge. Go one day and don't think one negative thing about anyone. Just try it. And by the way, with this test, these 10 tests, just to take away one potential excuse, if your answer to many or most of these tests concerning those you're humble with, vulnerable with, and so forth, if your answer is only your spouse, I hate to tell you this, but even the world does that. Even unbelievers confide at the deepest level in their spouses. Marriage and the family do not replace the church the body of Christ. They're part and parcel of one another. They're not in competition. They're in lockstep together. 
Or if you carefully craft your life such that you give the appearance of closeness to some people, but it's always carefully shaped to be people not in your local church, but somewhere else. I think often that's a dead giveaway of someone protecting themselves while giving the impression of great and tremendous relationships. I've been pastoring long enough now to make some long-range observations over time, and many pastors with whom I'm close have pointed out the same phenomenon. We've all seen it. And that is the church member that we call just passing through. The one who stays for two, three, maybe at the outside four years before finding some inane excuse, some secondary or tertiary dissatisfaction to necessitate moving on to a new local church, and this has been the pattern of life. What is that about? I believe in many cases that relationships started to get too close. Or that others were noticing an aloofness and and beginning to press you into becoming more involved in a small group, becoming more involved in serving, and so it becomes time to move on because too many people are pressing. And generally, blame is cast at others, at leaders, at other members, and then that person is relieved at being able to be invisible once again in a new local church. Here is the whole point. The person who genuinely loves God, the love given to him by God because his sins have been forgiven and he is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that person involuntarily loves God's people. It's instinctive, it's intuitive, it's innate, it's natural. And if you honestly in your heart, if you know that you know that you know that you're keeping others at arm's length, That's not a personality problem. The Bible doesn't recognize the concept of personality. It's not a problem with everyone else. It is potentially a spiritual problem of the highest magnitude. A lovelessness for the body of Christ, meaning you are not part of the body of Christ. I am obsessed as your shepherd with seeing every one of you in heaven. I am obsessed with helping organize the Grand Grace Bible Church reunion at the gate of Benjamin or Judah or something. I don't want to look around and go, hey, where's so-and-so? One of the reasons God created preaching instead of roundtable discussion groups is that preaching enables you to silently examine your own heart. If this message has angered you or insulted you, I would simply say what Paul told the Corinthians who had glibly forgotten his work in their lives. Test yourselves to see if you were in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? You might justify yourself internally. You might say, I I love God. I just don't love his people. There's no category for that in Scripture. You're either in massive disobedience or you're not in Christ. Remember the test of salvation. 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the one who gives new birth loves also the one who has been born of him. I want to give you an illustration, and you don't have to turn there. In fact, I want you to just kind of relax and listen to this. One of the most poignant Living illustrations 
that the person who loves God loves God's people. And the person who loves God's people loves God's people because he loves God. One of the sweetest examples we have in Scripture of that connection between love for God and love for God's people, those with a a genuine faith involuntarily loving God's people, is found in the story of Ruth, the young, destitute, Moabite widow. And I want to build to a point here. I want to remind you of the story. Her husband, a young Jewish man, has died young, leaving only her sister-in-law, Orpah, and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi, now a widow herself, intends to return to her original home in Bethlehem. She encourages her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, go back to your families. Stay here in Moab. I'm going home. Orpah, the other daughter-in-law, she does so. She returns to her biological family and to the worship of the pagan gods of, of Moab. But Ruth stays with Naomi, and Naomi once again presses Ruth, go home, go to your family, go to your gods. But Ruth 1.14 says that Ruth clung to her. And then Ruth gives this timeless statement, not only of her love for Naomi, but her love for God. In Ruth 1.16, but Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Now, it might be tempting to think that Uh, Becoming a genuine worshiper of Yahweh was simply part of the package of staying with Naomi. That that Ruth and Naomi were really close. You know, we we get along well as a mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. We get along. That's one in a million. So we're going to stick with it here. And I guess I have to be a Yahweh worshiper also. That she would at least take on the appearance of being a genuine worshiper. I, I may as well convert since I'm going to live in the land of the Jews anyway. But I want you to consider this. Naomi encouraged Ruth to return to her own people, her own family. Ruth was still a a very young woman, would have had a large family, likely having living parents, brothers and sisters to return to. They would provide safety, security, provision for her until such time as she found another husband. She would not have been at all in the situation of an older, childless widow with no family to help her. So why? Why would she abandon all that security, safety, provision, just to follow her destitute mother-in-law to a city that Ruth had never been to, to Bethlehem. Because in Bethlehem, she would have no standing. She would have no respect. She would have no regard. She would be a destitute, begging widow from a foreign nation, which incidentally had been cursed by God for their continual annoyance to Israel. Was her love for Naomi that strong? We won't deny that her love for Naomi was definitely strong, but theologically it's much more likely that when she said, where you go, I will go, where you lodge, I will lodge, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. It's not that Ruth is saying, if I go with you, I will start worshiping your God. That's not what's happening here. She was already a converted worshiper of Yahweh. And now she knew precisely one other worshiper of the true and living God, Naomi. Our English translations provide the verb shall be in your people shall be my people and your God, my God. But in Hebrew, there's no verb there. It's just possessive nouns. Your people, my people, your God, my God. 
It's common to supply a verb in phrases like that, the shall be as a future tense verb, but that's an assumption. It's much more likely that it's simply, your people are my people, and your God is my God. Ruth had forsaken the worship of the Moabite god Chemosh. She had become a genuine worshiper of the God of Israel. If she went back to her family, she'd be surrounded by pagans, surrounded by Chemosh worshipers. Now, if you are having a hard time relating to that, let me put it in terms you can understand. If you were living in a foreign nation with one church, one Christian church, And that church was comprised of your father-in-law, your mother-in-law, your husband, your brother-in-law, your sister-in-law, and that's it. And all the men die, and your sister-in-law forsakes the faith and goes back to her pagan ways, and your mother-in-law, the last remaining Christian you know on this earth, says, I'm leaving. What would you say? You would say, I'm going with you. You must. You would be compelled to. You see, Ruth's love for Naomi wasn't just because she was a dutiful and faithful daughter-in-law. Ruth's love for Naomi was because she worshipped Yahweh with Naomi and was bonded to her at a level even beyond her own biological family. Orpah easily left. She made a brief show of love. Oh, I want to stay. (laughs) And then that was it. Ruth was compelled to stay with Naomi because Naomi was the last member of her church, so to speak. The only fellow worshiper of God she knew in the whole world. And she couldn't be without her. Listen, if you're compelled and overjoyed to love the people of God, if you can't imagine life without the sweet fellowship of the saints, if you fully know that we're all weak sinners but saved by grace and you put yourself in that same category, if the fellowship of your connection to others who claim Christ is such that these are the greatest bonds that you have on this earth, if the pleasantness of gathering with God's people is like the freshness of morning dew to you, if your soul longs to connect with your brothers in Christ, if you yearn to connect with your sisters in Christ, you may take comfort in your salvation. As 1 John 3, 14 says clearly, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. So take comfort in that. But 1 John 3, 14 continues, the one who does not love abides in death. Anyone can vaguely say, sure, I love God. Lots of unbelievers even say, sure, I love Jesus. By the way, we'll meet them later in Matthew 7. And maybe you can fool yourself. But Jesus Christ is so kind, so gracious to give us a test that we can immediately assess ourselves. If you will be brutally honest with yourself, do you love the redeemed? Does the church fill your soul with delight such that your heart almost bursts with the need to gather with them? And the fellowship together. I believe that may be the most important question you ask yourself because that tells you the state of your soul. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you now so thankful for the warnings 
in Matthew 7 and, and how kind and generous and gentle Jesus is with this particular warning to tell us that whatever you want people to do for you, so do for them, for this is the law and the prophets. And having just given this beautiful demonstration, illustration of what the love of God is like and giving us the, the logic that if you do not love in this way, then you are not in Christ. We thank you for the book of First John, which two dozen times or more explains to us that because you loved us first, only then can we love. The one who does not love his brother is not in God. Lord, I pray for our little local church here. I pray that every single person would be in Christ and we would think particularly of the younger ones, Lord. Bring them to faith very soon. Let there not be one missing. I pray for every person hearing this, whether here in this room or live streaming or listening later. If there is a nagging doubt that I really don't love God's people. Oh Lord, I pray that that would be the impetus, that would be the moment that the Spirit of God regenerates and brings faith and brings repentance. And I pray for our local church, Lord, that we would be characterized by love. I pray that that even those who walk in our doors for the first time would, would, would leave and go home amazed. Those people love each other and they loved me. May we demonstrate that we belong to Christ by how we love one another. We're kind of near the beginning of our calendar year, Lord, and I pray for each one of us that we would resolve to be those who love the body of Christ at a higher level, more commitment, more delight, more determination than ever before. And Lord, all of this is made possible by the work of Christ on the cross. And as we come now to approach the most solemn, the most important, the most serious, the most significant portion of Christian worship, the table of the Lord, the Lord's Supper, our communion time. Oh Lord, I pray that our hearts would be filled with thankfulness for the great salvation that you have given to us. We thank you and praise you. In Christ's name, amen.